only impardonable sin is the rejection of the Holy Spirit to say no to him until your dying breath. That's it. No other sin will keep you out of heaven. Like no other sin is so bad that it will keep you out of heaven except that one. Like there's no sin that anyone can't ask for forgiveness and come to Christ with and God would forgive. There's one. It's, it's the rejection of his spirit. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. started. We're going to get started. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nahum. The Old Testament book of Nahum. And uh, we are continuing our study through the minor prophets. And if you're just joining us, you've joined at a very <laughs> a great night. And, uh, and uh, we're looking forward to the book of Nahum. How many of you how many have read the book of Nahum? Okay. How many of you understood what the book of Nahum was about? Right on. Yeah. You're looking at my whole week. So I just read, <laughs> I've read it so many times and I still uh, don't, don't know what it's about. So let's learn together, shall we? The more you know. Um, I'm sorry. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tonight. And God, we do ask that you would teach us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that uh, this is your word. And Lord, you have placed it here for us for our admonition, Lord, to uh, as an example and an imprint in our life. Uh, And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, understand and make application to your word. We love you. Uh, We thank you, God, that you love us, that you care for us, Lord, that you desire to dwell with us and to speak to us and to draw us close to you. So, uh, Lord, we we ask that you do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Nahum, uh, as I was studying today, someone said that the book of Nahum is the most difficult book to understand. Um, And that was super encouraging to me. As, as I am seeking to understand it. But uh, like, like we've done in the past, each book that we've gone through has kind of the, the, these two sentences that sum it up, help us to remember what it's about and why the book is in the Bible. And tonight, Nahum is the prophet of judgment, prophet of judgment, and the theme of it is Nineveh and God's anger. Nineveh and God's anger. So it's a difficult book to understand. It's, it's an intense book in that I think that um, most metal bands get their lyrics from the book of Nahum, right? <laughs> they're like, yeah, and it's like that double kick, and they're like, you shall dig your grave and, and go all crazy um, because it is a very intense book of the Bible. Nahum is the sequel to Jonah. But between the two, there's about 200 years of history, 200 years of time passed between Jonah coming to the city of Nineveh. If you remember, we studied the book of Jonah. Uh, If you don't remember the story, Jonah 
is a prophet of God, called by God to go to the Assyrian capital, which is the city of Nineveh. It was a huge city. It took three days to walk across it. Uh, it was a, a very large, bustling metropolis filled with 120,000 children, uh, Jonah tells us. Um, but remember, Jonah goes the opposite way. The Lord chases after him. He gets swallowed by a fish and thrown up on the sea. Remember that whole story? Okay. And then he goes to Nineveh and he preaches the message that God told him, which is 40 days and destruction will come. They had one of the greatest revivals in all of history. The entire nation turned. They put on sackcloth. They mourned. They, they turned from their ways. They, they listened, basically, to the message. And Jonah, to much to his demise, uh, was very upset because he was ready for God to destroy them. And, uh, and so that was kind of God relenting from his anger, God uh, warning these people that destruction would come unless they would turn. They listened. They turned. 150 years goes by, and here we are at the book of Nahum. It seems that they had gone back into their old ways. The generation that had lived out that revival ceased to pass that on to their children. They stopped passing along that story of revival and walking with God and walking in righteousness. And the next generation rose up and continued to walk in wickedness. Now, um, it's interesting because the nation of Israel also has a similar part of that story in their own history. In the book of Joshua, it says that a, a new generation arose that did not know the stories of the parting of the Red Sea. They, they had ceased to pass it on to the next generation, and so they began to worship false gods. They began to go back uh, into idolatry and things like that. So this is something that we see in, in human behavior um, is we tend to go back into these grooves all behavior creates a groove pattern in our life, if you will. It, it creates a, a line in our life that if we're not careful, whatever, whatever behavior we, we continue in, it makes that groove deeper and deeper. It makes it harder to get out of, especially a bad habit or a bad, uh, something that we know that God's word tells us not to do. The more that we engage in that, the deeper the groove gets. Now, when you come out of that in repentance and you turn from it, okay, it's easy to slip back into that groove. And similar to the nation of uh, the Assyrians, they slip back into those old ways and those, those things of wickedness. So the initial repentance of Nineveh had faded and they had gone back to the things uh, that they were engaged in before. Now, the date of this book and when it's written, there's some debate over it. Some believe it was during the reign of King Hezekiah, which would make Nahum a contemporary of Isaiah. And there are some verses in here that do mirror a lot of the same things that Isaiah was saying. But um, others put it, place it closer to the destruction of Assyria, uh, of the Assyrian Empire. But this Assyrian Empire will fall to the Medes and the Babylonians who will inherit the Israelites as exiles, okay? So right now, the Assyrians are ruling. Remember, we've, we've talked about them week after week. They were a wicked people. Um, 
did not know the Lord, uh, did not follow God. They were a cruel people uh, in the way that they conquered nations and conquered lands. Um, but they will be conquered by the Babylonians. They will be conquered by the Medes. It's actually the father of Nebuchadnezzar who will lead his army and lay siege to Nineveh for three years. Now, to lay siege would mean that you would bring your army and encamp around the entirety of a city and you'd basically wait them out. There'd be no food going into the city. All of that would be stopped. And you'd basically wait for the people to either starve to death or come out and fight. And so for three years, they, they waited there for Nineveh to either give up or starve to death. And, and Nineveh fought back. I mean, they would send out their armies against uh, the, the Babylonians and fight and then come back in. I mean, this is a three-year process. Uh, the, grant, or the father of Nebuchadnezzar writes about how it was getting more difficult to um, wait this out. They were almost like kind of losing the battle here, but they laid siege to this city for three years and the city will fall. And that's what Nahum begins to prophesy. In fact, his prophecies are so detailed and down to like very specific ways in which they will be conquered that a lot of people think that this is made up because it's so like close and exact to what, what happened. So they're like, no way. It had to be like a guy writing after the fact. Not so. This is written 200, 100 years before this ever happens. But it also speaks again. So if you have those layouts of time, you have Jonah coming with this message of turn or burn <laughs> um, kind of a thing, just to shorten it, turn or burn, right? And they do. 200 years, 150 years goes by, and God is, is that whole time patiently waiting with mercy, right? He sends Nahum, Nahum prophesies, and the next hundred years, God is waiting and waiting and waiting. So what we're about to read, understand, it's not like God gave them a week and he's like, that's it, I'm done, okay? There is so much time that's gone by of God's mercy and God's um, patience with them. In fact, you see that all the way back to the story of the flood. Remember when when God told Noah and his family, I'm going to flood the earth, they had to build this giant boat. It took them 100 years to build this boat. For 100 years, it said that Noah and his family preached that destruction will come, they need to turn from their wicked ways. For 100 years, God gave them grace and mercy and, and time to turn. So God deals with us patiently. So what, when we read this tonight, <coughs> keep that in mind, Okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> this is not a happy one. Remember the three cyclical themes? What are the three cyclical themes of the minor prophets? I'll start with R. Return, repent, restore. Okay, right? Good job. Way to go. So good. The, that's not in here at all. Okay, those, those are not in here. And the reason being is because God's done. He's done. Like, this is a pronouncement of judgment, and God says, we're done. Okay? God bless you. Welcome to church. Here we go. <laughs> Verse 1. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. See what I mean about the metal band thing, the metal band lyrics? That would be a pretty good one. Um, <laughs> but here is described, <coughs> um, he describes where he's from. Nahum actually means 
comfort or comforter, okay? But he doesn't deliver a comforting message. But if you, if you go to Israel, there's a place on the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum, or Capernaum, okay? Which is the home of Nahum, they believe. And there's actually a place close by there that could be where um, the Elkishites are from. This is where Jesus spent most of his, his earthly ministry was there in Capernaum. They say it Capernaum, 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 okay? It's, it's a word that my tongue cannot pronounce. But that's, that's, some believe where he was from and where his town was. But he begins with this just declaration of God. Like, this is who God is. God is a jealous God. Now, this is the, the verse that Oprah has a problem with. She's like, I don't understand a God who would be jealous of me. And she doesn't talk like that. But, but this, is the, this is what a lot of people don't understand. Is like, jealousy in the way that we are jealous can be tainted by sin, isn't it? it it's affected by a sinful like, heart a lot of times. We can be jealous of what people have. We can be jealous of the, of the praise that someone else gets. We can be jealous of, of what, and usually it's because it affects us and what we want or where we want to be. In the way that God is jealous, it's not in the way that, that we are jealous, where it can be tainted by sin. God, in this description of his desire for the nation of Israel, is that there would be this oneness of worship, Okay? All of the minor prophets have been about how God is the one God who is to be worshipped. He will not share his throne with any other God. He will not, like, he even preaches a whole sermon in the book of Hosea about how the nation of Israel has played the harlot against him. That they were betrothed to him as a husband, right? That he, he was their husband, they were his bride, and they had gone out on him. And he's, he's like, you don't, do you understand the hurt that I feel? There, there's supposed to be this exclusivity between me and you, and you're going out on me. And so it was, he was displaying the heart of God. So when it talks about God being jealous of us or, or jealous of our affection, it's because we were designed with this intention to have a relationship with God that was built on exclusivity. And so God does not share our hearts with anyone, but it says that he avenges um, <coughs> avenges the nation of Israel and is furious, is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserve wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. Now, the Assyrians at this point had captured the northern kingdom of Israel. And they would divide the people up. The way that they would conquer a people is they would come into a land they would capture them. They would lead them away captive. A lot of times they would maim their captives. Uh, they would remove their ears. Uh, on others, they would take an eye. They would remove their thumbs. Um, they would just member them uh, a lot of times to strike fear into uh, other nations. They would take out their tongues. They would do all these horrible things uh, to them. They would stack skulls outside of their cities, like in these huge piles. It was to strike fear into Right? All of you who are like, like it's working. It's all working. Everything that they, they, right? It's working. That's why they did it. So you'd be like, oh no. And you're like, I'm not going to mess with them. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It looks like something out of like Temple of Doom with all these skulls. Um, anywho. So they remove their thumbs and ears and nose and tongue. This is so fun. Isn't it fun going through the Bible? Yeah, it's great. I'm so glad we did this. Here we go. 
So the Assyrians, what they would do as part of that, the part of the way that they would conquer a people is that they found if they left people in their homeland, like in their own territory, they would rise up and fight. Like this is our land. So what they would do is they would take them and ship them off to a different, a different part of the kingdom. They would lose all sense of nationality. They would mix them in with other nations that they had conquered so that they don't speak the same language, they don't have the same customs, they don't worship the same gods. And basically, it was the Assyrians' way of resetting culture. Like, reset button, now we'll all fall into this one culture, our culture. It was brilliant, actually. And it worked very well for a long time. And so that's what's happening to the nation of Israel. They've been maimed, they've been let off into other places, they've been disbanded from their own land in the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Judah has not been conquered yet. Jerusalem, Assyria will come and try and take Jerusalem, but something really cool happens, and we'll get to that in a, in a little while. But verse 3 says that he is slow to anger, and all of us went, oh, thank God. Thank God that he is slow to anger. He's like a crockpot, is what he's basically <laughs> describing, Okay. Um, <coughs> takes a while <laughs> for things to cook, but they do. Okay, so, man, I should have studied more. So God is not a crockpot, but what he's saying here is that God is slow to anger. He is just that. He's patient. God deals with us patiently. And what people can a lot of times think is that God just wakes up in a bad mood and now he's pronouncing judgment on, the, on Nineveh. And it's like, no, that's not what's happened here. Remember, there's 300 years that have gone by of God just slowly being patient and kind and merciful. He's slow to anger, meaning that over time, God has gotten angry because things have not changed. And there's a fury. I mean, we read this stuff. I think we forget sometimes and think I were on this side of the cross. But when you think about the fury and wrath of God... It, does, it's, it should do exactly what it's doing in all of us, which should make us shake a little bit. Because he's about to describe the power of God, and, and Nahum is helping us to understand God is a righteous, holy God, full of love, benevolent, omni-benevolent, all-loving God, all-merciful God, but he is also a righteous and holy God who is also worthy of worship, and his judgments are right and true. And so as he moves through this, he reminds us that God is merciful. But he is also, and he's long-suffering. The Bible tells us that as well. He's patient. He's patient with us. He deals with us with great patience. But he has great power, and God will punish wickedness. God sees. He doesn't just let it slide. A lot of times we think, like, God's just letting things slide. Any, anyone in the past few years being like, what are you doing? Like, why are these things happening? Why are these things allowed to go on? God, do something. Show your righteousness. And, and the same righteousness that, that we're calling down upon others and like the judgment that we would call down upon others is the same that we deserve. If, had it not been for the cross of Jesus Christ, we're, we were under wrath, we were under judgment. And so God's patience with us should, should cause compassion, but understand that God doesn't just let sin go. God doesn't, just because you're getting away with it, doesn't mean that it's either one, driving you from the presence of God, and you're getting further away from him, and B, he knows that it's going on. 
You're not fooling him. We're not fooling him. We're not like, ha he doesn't even know. Oh my gosh. That's how stupid I am, is to think that I can get away with it. You know who else was stupid? Jonah. He went to the bottom of, the, of a boat like, God doesn't know I'm here. Come on. Like, we're prone to the same stupidity. To think that God who made all things and holds the very breath in your lungs in his hand, you think he doesn't know? And that's the point, is that God deals patiently with us. It's not that God doesn't care about sin or that God's letting things slide. It's that God is gracious and he is merciful and he is patient and he is long-suffering. But sin will always have a cause and effect. Um, we can think that it doesn't matter. Or, I love this one. This one's a, a lot, this is what's happening a lot right now. We rationalize sin to think that God approves of our lifestyle and our choices. This is what everyone is doing. Like, this is my truth. Like, God, get on board with my truth. God doesn't care about your truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It's his truth. Like, it, it doesn't matter what... <laughs> what you feel or what you think. Like, it's, it's God's standard in his alone, right? Everyone's trying to get on board. Like, God, this is the way that I, I lean towards, and, I, and I'm only gonna be happy if I live like this. And so, God, just get on board with it, right? Get on board with it. I'm gonna post about it so that I'm out in the open, and so it, so it feels better, right? It feels better that it's out in the open, and I don't have to hide anything anymore, and, and, and all this stuff. I can live how I wanna live, and God's okay with it. No, he's not. Do you know why? Because it says in his word that he's not. He's not changing that. And just because we can rationalize it or make it into something into our modern times of like this is what the modern way of things are. It wasn't like this back in the old days or back in biblical times. It's different now. Human beings have acted like human beings since the beginning of human beings. That's why the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Okay? Now we just have social media. That's the difference. We have technological advances, but so did they back then in their own certain way. Guys, we cannot rationalize sin and think that God approves of our lifestyle just because other people approve of our lifestyle and our choices. Just because I have a friend who will affirm me doesn't mean that God does. Anyone can find a friend who will affirm the things that you do, right? Right? All of us have had those friends who are like, yeah, do it, man. And you do something stupid and then they bail, right? And they're like, yeah, jump off it, yeah. And you do it and they're like, oh, idiot. And then they leave, right? We all have those friends who will affirm everything they would do. I really want to lose three pounds. You're beautiful. Oh, you're beautiful. Oh, you look great in that dress. You look amazing. Oh, bangs are great on you. And then you see it and you're like, I look horrible. I look horrible. We all can find people who will affirm our choices. It does not mean that God affirms them or agrees with them. <laughs> That's the point I'm getting to. Moving on, verse four. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. I want you to see in verse four, look, there's one sentence in there. He rebukes the sea. Turn with me to Matthew's gospel, chapter eight, verse 23. Matthew's gospel, chapter eight, verse 23. 
It says, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the sea and there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, who can be or who can this be? that even the winds and the sea obey him. What did Nahum say? That God rebukes the sea and it listens. The same voice here in Nahum is the same voice in the gospel of Matthew. The sea obeys its creator. That Jesus was in fact God in flesh. And the same voice that pronounced judgment and rebukes the sea in Nahum is the same voice that says and preached the, the Sermon on the Mount, preached grace, love, and righteousness and holiness. I find it fascinating that some people will say, like, Jesus never claimed to be God. Lots of times. Like, all the time. Lots and lots of times. Um, you know, the whole, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father thing. That's a big deal. <laughs> you know, just to name a few. The same voice. I find that amazing that God the Father rebukes the sea. Jesus rebukes the sea. And his disciples say, like, who can do this? Like, who, who can speak to nature and it listens? Probably the creator of it. Right? Well, first, verse 7 really shifts. It shifts in audience. It begins to talk about the nation of Israel. Because it says that the Lord is good. Right? Sounds like a real weird and Nahum's crazy, right? He's like, God's going to judge you, and God is good. And you're like, wait a second. How do you make that shift? Someone's a little manic on a Monday. The Lord is good. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, that's quite a shift in the narrative. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. Who's it speaking to? It's speaking to those who are with God and on God's side. To them, the Lord is good. And his judgments are right. His judgments are true. And it says that God truly is a refuge, the one that we can run to, find shelter and safety in. He is our strength. And he knows those who trust in him. He sees them. No one is beyond his sight. He sees those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, verse 8, he will make an utter end of its place. And darkness will pursue his enemies. Now, this is an interesting verse. It talks about an overflowing flood. The way that Nineveh was actually conquered, okay, is because the rivers overflowed. Nineveh was, was this amazing city that had canals like Venice in it. It's pretty fascinating when you, you know, study it. Um, there was canals like Venice. Any of you ever been to Venice? Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> But, no, good for you. Sorry, that was rude. That was super rude. That was rude. Um, I hear it's pretty cool. Or, <laughs> I don't know why you brought it up. <clears throat> so, as their city was right by these rivers, they overflowed. And as they overflowed, these rivers took out part of the wall and broke down their walls. And as it broke down their walls, Babylon was able to come in through those broken down walls. So what does he say? With an overflowing flood, 
he will make an utter end of its place. And that is exactly what happened. Through the overflow of the rivers, God does what he says. He says in verse 9, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. For while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dried. Talks about the king that was held up in the city and he felt so safe and so like secure that he just began to have drinking parties. Like we're just just gonna get drunk. Like no one's gonna get in here. It says that Nineveh's walls, it had walls and then it had inner walls. Its inner walls were so thick that you can race four chariots across it. Like this was a fortified, huge city that was well, uh, well past its, or well above its time as far as technology and what they could do, right? And so the king's held up in this place. Think about it. You have an army outside of your walls for a year and you're like, <laughs> and just drinking and having a good old time. What happened is safety was this thing that, that totally cloaked reality, felt safe. Jesus told a story of a man who, who was talking about uh, his livelihood. He had all these barns and, and, and all things, and kind of basically financially set. He's like, I will tear down these barns and build new ones, and, and once I get those built, then I'm just gonna live my life and retire, I'm gonna enjoy it. And Jesus, remember he says, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And thanks. Thank you. My caddy, thank you very much. Of German descent. Schlettenhofer, I love you, guy. Oh, hallelujah. Water of life. What were we talking about? Safety. <coughs> Safety. Um, yeah, King felt safe, and so he just started drinking himself to death. And the Lord said, Keep drinking. It's coming. Affliction's coming. You know, safety can do that. It can, and it can cloak us. I think um, Zach said it one time, and, and it's stuck in my head. He said that the devil will never, is never too busy to rock the cradle of the sleeping Christian. Like, he'll keep you safe in feeling of safety. He'll keep you asleep. As long as you're not in the game, man, he's never too busy to just keep you asleep. And, and in, in this case, destruction comes in, in the king, and it says he will, it'll burn like, like stubble fully dried, like a match into, into, um, into fully dried forestry will just take off. Verse 11, it says, from, from you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord and a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though you are safe and likewise many, yet in the manner they will be cut, be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Verse 11 talks about this wicked counselor, um, and you can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 18 if you want in your spare time. He has a really fun name that's really fun to pronounce, and I'm not going to try because it sounds like a word I shouldn't say. So um, have fun. 2 Kings 18.28 talks about this wicked counselor who, who is leading the nation of Israel astray. Now, verse 12, uh, it says, Though you are safe and likewise many, in one night... The Assyrian army, they came to capture Jerusalem. Remember I said they, they would come into the southern kingdom of Israel and they were going to try and capture Jerusalem. And it says that the angel of the Lord came and in one night he destroyed and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, one, one angel by himself in one night. Right? That's what this is talking about. Though you felt safe, 
Um, when he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I'll afflict you no more. For now I will break off uh, his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image, and I will dig your grave. That's a terrifying thing, right? What does God say? I'm going to dig your grave, Nineveh. And I'm going to put you in it, and I'm going to put the dirt right over the top of you. We're done. That's what it says. That's what it says. And God is very serious about this at this point. But here we go. This is where Jesus comes in. Are you ready? Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings. Verse 15. Who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Here we see Jesus, the one who proclaims or posts peace. These verses are mirrored in Isaiah 52, verse 7, as the one who, who posts peace. This is speaking of the Messiah who is to come. Jesus and, and the writer Nahum is saying, although it is a mess, Israel, it's a mess. You're in captivity right now from these horrible people, and soon you will be captives of another nation, the Babylonians, which will also be awful. But guess what? The Messiah is coming. Like, he's coming. The one who proclaims peace will come. Just hold on. Chapter, chapter 2 begins this discussion of the war, okay? Chapter 1 was the God or God, and, and then chapter 2 is about the war. It begins to talk about what's going to take place. Verse 6 says, the gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. Speaking of the canals and rivers flooding again and opening up the city unto its enemies and would be utterly destroyed. The Assyrians were robbers. Look what it says later in these verses. Though Nineveh was old or, or of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. He's talking about as destruction is coming, as beautiful as the city was, no matter what the guards say of like, stand your ground, stay. People are running for their lives. No one can keep them in the building. He says, take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold. There is no end of treasure or wealth for every desirable prize. The, the Syrians were robbers too. Okay, so when they would go in and conquer, they conquered the, like a lot. They were a world power at this point. They would take the spoils. like They would take all the riches. They had a treasure room. And now it belongs to the Babylonians, is what he's saying. Like... All of this pride that you had in your treasures, it's gone. Now it's given to someone else. They're coming in and they're going to take it all. Verse 13 says something. Behold, I'm against you. That is a terrifying verse, right? Behold, I'm against you. Like these are, the reason that this book is so intense is because the intensity of the judgment that is to come. Right? Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. He says, there's no more Assyrians. When's the last time you met an Assyrian? You're like, hi, I'm of Assyrian descent. I did my you know, 23andMe test and came back 90% Assyrian. Never. Like, why? Because they don't exist. They don't exist anymore. There are no Assyrians anymore, just like there are no Romans anymore, right? Those superpowers or these things that, that took over the world, they're gone. These kingdoms are gone because there's one king that will last forever, and that is Jesus Christ. 
Okay? So he says to the nation, like, you're no more. We're done. Now the transition in chapter 3 is it talks about the city. The city. Now this verse right here, if you haven't highlighted it yet, you should. Verse 5, behold, I am against you, Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face. <laughs> what does he say? I'm going to pants you. I'm going to pants you, and everyone is going to laugh at you. Right? He's going to bring shame upon them. I've never seen that verse in my life up until today, and I was in my office by myself laughing because they got pantsed. But he said, I'm going to show, like, you're going to be, people are going to, are going to see the destruction of Nineveh and, and just wonder, like, how, how did this happen? How did this take place? I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile. Make you, make you a spectacle. It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? He says, who's going to miss you because of how cruel and evil you've been? People are going to rejoice that you're gone. Like, what a horrible testimony to be left. Verse 11 says, you also shall be drunk, or also will be drunk. You'll be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. And all your strongholds, all your fig trees will be ripened figs. Um, where it says you will be hidden. Nineveh was hidden for 2,400 years until it was excavated in 1842. It was so destroyed and dug into the ground that it was hidden for 2,400 years. They used to believe that Nineveh was a fairy tale, that it was a made-up place, like Atlantis, like it never happened. Why? Because it was so buried in the ground. Because God dug its grave and put them in it and then covered it. And they were hidden. So these prophecies of the rivers overflowing to bring their destruction, of them being hidden, all came true. They came true because they would not heed the voice of the Lord. God in his patience and his kindness, I think that's the, the saddest thing. And, and really what the Bible tells us is the only unpardonable sin is the rejection of the Holy Spirit. The rejection of the Holy Spirit is that God in his loving kindness, in his grace, calls to you by his Holy Spirit to turn to the Lord, to turn to the Lord. The Bible, remember we did our, our Holy Spirit study, we talked about how the Holy Spirit is with you, in you, and then comes upon you. He's with us in the sense that he is drawing people and coaxing people towards Jesus Christ. He's with us, pointing us to him. That's his ministry in the world is to draw men unto Jesus. That, that's why he's here. That's with us. When he comes in us, it's when someone is regenerated. They're, they're born again by the Spirit of God. When he comes upon is that baptism of the Holy Spirit where we're filled with power, overflowing, right? The only impardonable sin is the rejection of the Holy Spirit to say no to him until your dying breath. That's it. No other sin will keep you out of heaven. Like no other sin is so bad that it will keep you out of heaven except that one. 
Like there's no sin that anyone can't ask for forgiveness and come to Christ with and God would forgive. There's one and it's, it's the rejection of his spirit. And that's what Nineveh was doing. They rejected God. They rejected his prophets. They rejected um, his way. They rejected his warning, all of that. And so God said, I've been slow to anger, but it's done. We're done. And so Paul talks about in Corinthians how these things are written for our admonition, our example, our imprints, right? He says these are things that they're laid out for us so that we could read them and see them and go, okay, I'm not going to do that, right? Don't do that. Do this, right? Ever seen that book at Barnes & Noble? It said, eat this, not that. Remember that book? I had like 10 of them, never worked. Um, but yeah, that's what these stories are, are to remind us of. Not only of like the power and the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, but also like you don't, this doesn't have to be your story. You don't have to experience that. We have the cross of Christ. Our sins are washed away, wiped away. I mean, forgiven. The only thing that will keep you from it is you, if you will not repent and turn to God. Like, that's it. God calls to you. He calls to all of us and says, walk with me, come to me, receive forgiveness of your sins. Receive eternal life with me forever. But a lot of people, they won't do it. And that's why the Lord told Israel, you stiff-necked, stubborn people. And so they went into exile. This is where they ended up because they would not listen. They would not listen. Um, I know it's a heavy book, and um, I'm sorry, but it, it's what it says. I mean, it's, it is what it is. But I think it serves the purpose in which God intended it to be. It reminds us again that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? That's why Solomon said, you want to be wise? Step one, learn to fear the Lord. Not in the scary, like God's going to dig my grave and put me in it, but in the sense that, okay, God is all-powerful and I'm not. And it, I should receive his all-powerful grace instead of his all-powerful wrath. Um, last thing, and then we'll close. Jesus experienced the wrath of God for us. Meaning the wrath that was, was supposed to be upon me, Jesus took it upon himself. So that when I'm in Christ, I stand in his righteousness, right? So God sees me through the lens of Jesus Christ and sees his perfection upon me. It's an amazing thing. To reject Jesus and his salvation is to say that I'm going to stand before, before a holy and righteous God on my own merit. That's what it means. Like, I don't need Jesus and his righteousness. I got my own. Watch this. It's not going to work. Like, it doesn't. That's why Jesus went to the cross. If we could, if we could make it better ourselves, then Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. Right? The whole point is that we can't fix it. We're a mess. I'm a mess. Like, my whole life, I'm a mess. My dog has fleas. Like, today, like, I'm a mess. My life is a mess. 
Not that that's what causes you to go to hell, but listen, sin affects all of us. Like, I'm a sinner just like you. I got an argument with a, a high school referee at my son's football game. I'm a grown man. He's 10, like it's not a big deal, but here I am just filled with the flesh, ready to punch this kid's lights out with his dumb little pit viper sunglasses on. And I'm like, take those, take them off and let's fight. <laughs> you know, like I'm just ready, angsty. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Big one, big fat one, big fat hairy one. We're a mess. That's why Jesus sent, or that's why God sent Jesus, our Messiah. That's the whole point of the minor prophets. God's people were a mess. They were a mess. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you the Messiah. So thank God. Praise God for his great mercy and his grace and his patience with us. Aren't you thankful? When you read passages like this, aren't you grateful when it says that God is slow to anger? That he is, he's a God who is, is patient with us. He's a God of the second, third, fourth, fifth chance. That when I come to him with the same sin, I say, God, forgive me. He does. Oh, man. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And um, God, I do thank you for the gift of grace and the gift of mercy that you've given to us by your son. And Lord, we thank you that we're saved not because of our merit and because we deserve it or earned it through our behavior, but God, you sent your son to provide a way. And so Lord, we, we pray tonight that we would heed the warnings of your word, that we wouldn't think that we're the exception to the rule. Um, Lord, that we would know uh, that this isn't something that is just for the person next to me, Lord, the word of God is for me. Lord, what are you speaking to my heart? What are you putting your finger on in my heart that needs to go or needs to be repented of? Or, uh, Lord, what are you calling me deeper into? Where have I gotten laxed in, in just my, uh, in my thought of you? And uh, Lord, we want to be those that have a short list when it comes to, to our repentance. Lord, when I come to you quick, because you're a God who loves to pour out mercy. And so we want to receive that tonight. We receive your mercy. Lord, we pray that the devil wouldn't take advantage tonight and bring condemnation. And that would keep us from you. But Lord, the conviction of the Holy Spirit would bring us to a place of acknowledging you in our life and asking for your forgiveness and getting right with you. And so we thank you for this time. I thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name.